It is the Father's will that Jesus heal this man and not just heal him, but heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't forget that it was the Sabbath. Jesus wanted to heal him on this day because he wants to set the people free. Now verse 27, and he said to them, and this is the key, these two phrases right here, this is the key for the whole section. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created man on the sixth day, and then God gave to man the blessing of the Sabbath, the gift of the day of rest. God gave it to man. And so Jesus says, God made the Sabbath for man and gave it to man. And so the Sabbath, follow the train of thought, the Sabbath serves man, not man serving the Sabbath. Because man's not given to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is given to man. Then the follow-up phrase, which is the clincher for the whole thing, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So what does Jesus mean by that? So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So if the Sabbath was given to man and the Son of Man, who is the divine Messiah, we made those connections in a previous message to Daniel 7 and what the Son of Man means, means it's the divine role of Messiah. If the Son of Man is fully God and fully man and the Son of Man is the King of His people and His people that are given to Him are man, are humans, and the Son of Man is their King, then everything given to man is ruled over by the King. Right? That's Jesus' logic here. If the Son of Man is Lord over people, then what's given to people, He's Lord over that too. So His conclusion is, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, because Sabbath is given to man. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, I make the rules for Sabbath, not you. I make the rules. I determine what's lawful on Sabbath, not you. Now we follow that up with the second example, which is just the same thing essentially as the first, only everything, the stakes are getting higher. The stakes are getting higher each time. Now, verse 3. And he entered the synagogue. So again, this is, this is probably... Most people, most scholars think this is the following Sabbath because all three Gospels put these stories right together. So it seems likely that the Gospel writers want us to see this as happening the very next Sabbath. So he entered the synagogue, and this is probably Capernaum. So if it is Capernaum, then the synagogue that he's entering is the same synagogue that he cast the demon out of, remember the man with the unclean spirit, after giving that incredibly authoritative teaching that just blew everybody's mind. Remember that? The, the authoritative teaching and everybody just was beside themselves with such authority, with such words of piercing authority. Probably the same synagogue. So he goes back into the same synagogue and you know that he taught there again. These people who heard such an incredible teaching before, you know that they would not let him not teach again. So he's likely here in the synagogue in the same building teaching once again. He entered the synagogue and a man was there with the withered hand. 
So now you can see, you can see where all this is going. You know Jesus's heart. You know how drawn he is to those who are suffering. You know his heart of compassion. And so you know that once a man is there with a withered hand, you know what Jesus is going to do. You know that he's going to heal the man. So this man was there with a withered hand, verse 2, and they watched Jesus. They, meaning the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So another one of those Sabbath rules was if someone was sick or injured on the Sabbath, you could give them only enough care to make them survive until the next day. Any more care than that was work. So for example, if someone was on the verge of death, maybe somebody had been cut really badly and they're bleeding out, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't sew it up until the next day because that would be work. You could only give enough care to save the life until the next day. You see where devotion to rules takes us. You see where legalism always takes you. It always takes you to hard-heartedness. So you could give just enough care. So immediately, we know this man with the withered hand, we don't know how long his hand's been withered, probably his whole life. He's not on the verge of death. And so everybody in the room knows Jesus can heal him tomorrow. There is nothing that says Jesus has to heal him today. Nothing that is except his Father's will. That's what Jesus said three times. John 5, John 8, John 12. I do nothing but my Father's will. So it is the Father's will that Jesus heal this man and not just heal him, but heal him on the Sabbath. And not just heal him on the Sabbath, but heal him in front of all these watching people because Jesus wants to bring this issue to the front. Jesus wants this confrontation. Jesus didn't forget that it was the Sabbath. Jesus didn't just get caught up in his emotions over this man's withered hand and just forget where he was. Jesus wanted to heal him on this day because he wants to set the people free from this. So this, they're watching. You can just see, can't you, the hard-heartedness. Maybe they even set this thing up. Because remember, the Pharisees, they were in charge of all the seating arrangements in the synagogue. Remember, Jesus himself says, you Pharisees, you just you get the best seats for yourself. You always arrange the best seats for yourself. So here's Jesus teaching, and the Pharisees probably don't think of them as across the room. They're not looking out across. You think Jesus is going to heal them? What do you think he's going to do? They're right beside him. And they probably have even arranged it to where this man is in such a place that Jesus can't miss him. Maybe they even escorted him up there where Jesus will see. And they're sitting right beside Jesus and they're listening to his every word. Not because they want to learn. Not because they want to encounter God. They're, they're listening to every word and they're watching. He's going he's gonna to see this man. And even they know Jesus well enough to know that when he sees him, he's going to heal him. So they're watching. Can you just imagine the hardness of heart here that, that they, they care nothing for the man but instead, in another situation, we might call this entrapment. They want to entrap Jesus into doing a good thing so that they might accuse him. It says, verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, speaking now to the Pharisees. So, the, so he, he calls the man up. Can you imagine being that man? He probably also knows what's about to happen. 
And so he's probably got this incredible euphoric anticipation with dread, with incredible dread, because he also likely knows this conflict that's about to happen. So Jesus says, come here, come here. And you get the idea that this is in front of all the people that maybe Jesus even stopped his teaching. Come here, up in front of everybody. So he says, come here. And he, and he came, the man with the withered hand came and Jesus turns to the Pharisees right beside him. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So Jesus is using lawful there in the same way that they use lawful. Jesus is not asking, is this in accordance with God's law for me to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus is asking, what does your law say? What does your rule book say about me doing good on the Sabbath? Does your rule book say I can do this? Do your laws say it's okay for me to do good on the Sabbath, to heal on the Sabbath, or to do evil on the Sabbath? What does your law book say? And then they were told they have no answer. Oftentimes, Jesus will encounter these people and he will just roll out like he did here. You can just see him just rolling out this word trap rolling out this doctrine trap for them in which they have no answer to give. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Well, if they say, well, yeah, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, then they just lost their chance to accuse him. If they say, no, it's not lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then that makes them out in front of everybody to be just the most wicked men that they really are. So they have no answer to get kind of like, all these other, these other times where Jesus will ask this question and there's no answer that they can. Jesus will say, whose son was David? Was the Messiah. The Messiah was his son. So how did he call him Lord when he was his son? You know, they have no answer. And on and on we see that sort of thing happen. So is it lawful or unlawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? You tell me. They have no answer for him. And he looked around at them with anger. The word there is literally fury, rage. Jesus isn't just annoyed. Jesus is seething with righteous anger. This is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus is explicitly said to be angry. There are other occasions in which we can imply that Jesus was angry, making the whip out of the cords and driving them out of the synagogue, or out of the temple rather. Or uh, when we're told that he was indignant because the disciples won't let the children come to him. So there's other times that we can sort of gather that Jesus was angry. But this is the only time in which we're explicitly told Jesus was angry. And we're not told he's angry. We're told he was furious. That he was filled with rage. Filled with righteous anger towards their hard, sinful heart that would rather see a man suffer than miss a chance to to score points against Jesus. Jesus is filled with this righteous anger and we know that the scriptures teach us that, that to be a holy God and to love a holy God necessarily means that there must be anger. In order to love God, you must also be angry at that which opposes God. You can't truly love God without being angry at that which opposes Him. But we as fallen people... We might talk about having righteous anger, but none of us have ever had truly righteous anger. The most righteous anger we've ever experienced towards sin has always been tainted and mixed together with our own fallenness and our own sinfulness. 
Jesus is the only man to ever experience truly righteous anger directed at nothing but the evil of the sin in their hearts. And he's furious. He's beside himself with fury over their hard-heartedness and then grieved at their hardness of heart. So he's angry and sad. He's angry and, and full of anguish that sin has captivated them so much that they are such a slave to their sinful hearts that he's angry and he's grieved at their hardness of heart. And he then turned back to the man and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So once again, Jesus gives a command that the, that the man can't follow. Kind of like the paralytic when he tells the paralytic, stand up and walk. He can't. He's a paralytic. That was the whole point. Jesus told him to do what he couldn't do. And he had to believe Jesus and stand up and walk. Same thing here. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. So the man's hand is said to be withered. That's the same word as dried up or shrunken up. It's the same word that would be used of a dead plant that had dried up and shrunk up. So the picture that I have in my mind, we've probably seen people that might have a deformity like this in which the hand is something more like a, like a claw where the tendons have all shrunk up and the fingers are, are shrunk down and the person can't open the hand. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what the condition might be called, but we've, we've seen things like that. That's what I have in mind. Shrunken, shriveled up, sort of like a claw kind of a hand. So what can he not do? Stretch out his hand. Stretch out your hand. He too must hear. He too must believe. And he too must do it. And he stretches out his hand. And we're told his hand was restored. Just like Jesus' other healing miracles, it's not gradual. It's not done in phases. He doesn't have a time of recuperation. His hand is instantly new. I got a little bit interested this week in the hand. And so I did some reading on our, our hand. Do you know what you have at the end of your arm? Well, yeah, a hand. But do you know what that thing is? Scientists and doctors tell us that the human hand is the most advanced mechanical device in existence apart from the human brain that the only thing more complex than the human hand is the human brain. Isn't that fascinating? What you have on the end of your arm is utterly mind-boggling. Scientists tell us about what makes your hand the way it is and what makes it so incredibly useful. All the bones that are in your hand, how they all move together. And you know your hand is something that has... You have, you have very few muscles in your hand. Almost all the muscles that move your hand are in your arm. And they're all attached to this intricate network of tendons that, that move your hands in such indescribably precise ways. Just think of a master musician playing an instrument or just, just think of a master craftsman using their hands to make things. Such incredibly intricate things that God gave us on the end of our arms. You know that your hands have four kinds of nerves you have a separate kind of nerve to distinguish light touch, a different kind of nerve to distinguish deep touch. You have another kind of nerve to distinguish temperature and another kind of nerve to distinguish texture. Which explains a lot, doesn't it? Right? 
When you really want to experience something, you know, you look at it and what do you have to do? You got to touch it. Why? Because your hand tells you so much. You know that your fingernails, if God didn't give you fingernails, then your hands wouldn't know how tightly to squeeze. Your fingernails are what tells your brain how tightly to squeeze. So if you didn't have fingernails, you'd pick up an egg and crush it because you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between light pressure and deep pressure. The hand is an utterly fascinating thing. Instantly, this man's given a new hand. In just an instant, the, the second most advanced thing that God created, He's got a new one right there. Stretch out your hand. He stretches it out. It's restored as just like new. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Him how to destroy this man. Now that, brothers and sisters, should be a reaction that should, even though we know the story, should startle us. This man needs to die. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you say that's a bit of an overreaction? This man needs to die. And they go and they conspire with this group of people known as the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, you might recognize Herod. So the Herodians were those who were in the clan, those who supported King Herod. Now, you might also know a little bit about how hated King Herod was. And not just King, you know, there were six or seven King Herods in the Scriptures. So, so all the Herods. Herod was not a light person. And the Herodians, the Herodians were Greek-speaking people who consorted with the enemies of God's people, much like tax collectors. The Herodians were really just one step removed from a tax collector. And here the Pharisees go out and consort with these Greek-speaking, non-Jew people on how to destroy this man. Doesn't that seem rather illogical, irrational? Sin is irrational, is it not? Jesus is bringing people together. He brings together people to be His followers, and He brings together people to consort to kill Him. 